Well, um, for those of you who are visiting, we, we're working our way through Luke's Gospel. Uh, and I, it seems to me that every time John leaves me a passage to preach on, and I seem to say this every time, it's a, one of, it's a really difficult passage. Um, and I don't preach very often. But it, it, it actually, uh, this, this passage really, when you look at it, it's not hard to understand what it's saying, is it? It's just that it's difficult to apply to our lives. Uh, you know, to hate your father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters and to hate your own life. How do we apply that to ourselves? Well, first of all, I think it's important to, to note that the, the first line there, that great crowds were accompanying him. It's almost as if uh, Jesus is wanting to thin them out a bit because who knows what their motives were for, for following him around. Perhaps they, they wanted to see a miracle. Uh, I imagine that, that was a lot, of, a lot of them, their motivation. They were hoping they might see something, something interesting. And, of course, they loved the way that Jesus was... Um, standing up to the Pharisees and their, their, their teachers and leaders because a lot of the people who were, who were following Jesus around were, were those who were on the outer as far as the, uh, the, the religious leaders went. But it seems that Jesus here is, has seen these crowds and they're kind of like the, the uh, seed that fell on the shallow soil. They've sprung up with a little bit of rain but he perhaps sees that their roots are shallow and so he's going to put the hard word on them and, and thin them out a bit. In the, uh, the church that I grew up in, we had the same um, written service every week. Uh, now, you know, you can argue for and against that, but the words that were actually said were, were good stuff. And one that's, I, I can pretty much say the entire uh, Anglican communion service off by heart still because I heard it every week for the first um, 30 odd years of my life uh, and one line was the priest would say hear what comfortable words our saviour Christ saith unto all who truly turn to him and then would follow a line of scripture uh, John 3.16 or come unto me all ye that travail and are heavy laden and I will give you rest that sort of thing well, it seems to me that these words that we read today are the uncomfortable words. Um, I mean, we're accustomed to hearing of, of God's grace and mercy in that he saved us when we have done absolutely nothing to deserve it. We all know that. There was nothing, there is nothing that we can do and nothing that we can give to influence God to save us. He has done it because he is God and it is his good pleasure to give us his kingdom. But here we see that there is a cost to being one of Jesus' disciples, to being one of his followers. Now, we know that grace is God's favour, his gift to us when we were completely lost. We could never have found our way back by ourselves. In fact, we had no part at all in our salvation. We did nothing, we contributed nothing towards it. But this grace that we have received is not cheap grace. It's not like it's a, it's the cheap grace is kind of we could compare it to the man who who leaves a leads a riotous drunken life, um, 
and a very selfish life, but then he falls in love and he marries the girl of his dreams but then goes on living in exactly the same way. That, that's cheap grace. Um, he's, you know, he still inhabits public houses and his mates and he ignores his wife. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Jesus died the most painful and humiliating death for our benefit. And are we then to go on living as if nothing had happened, as if nothing was any different? Well, Jesus says in this passage that there is a cost and, and he's completely upfront about it. He doesn't hide it. Uh, if you follow me, he says, this is what it's going to cost you. And, but then he's also upfront about the benefits, isn't he? Only last week we had the, the parable of the great banquet. Uh, you know, we want to be there. That, that, is, that is the the object of our faith is to be there with Jesus at the, at the great wedding feast of the Lamb. You need to be there. We want to sit at table with him. What will that be like? Well, we can't say exactly. The, the, the scripture that comes to mind is the one in Ephesians. Uh, now unto him who is able to do immeasurably more than anything we ask or imagine. So any thoughts we have about about the afterlife, about heaven, about sitting with Jesus in his banquet, that they're doomed to be inadequate. Uh, you know, we can think of all the best things in this life, things we would love to go on forever, but that's only going to be a very pale comparison of how good it will be. You need to be there. We want to be there. So Jesus is totally transparent and upfront about the costs of discipleship and the benefits. And we could compare that to Satan. Now, he promises much. I'll give you every all the pleasures that this world can offer if you'll just fall down and worship me. But the cost is not revealed until it's too late. The cost is that you must serve a, a, an evil, cruel tyrant for eternity. That's the fine print. And even Satan's promises for this life turn out to be hollow and, and shallow. Uh, the, the pleasures he promises are, are empty and frustrating and fleeting. Uh, Proverbs 20 says, Food gained by fraud tastes sweet to a man, but he ends up with a mouthful of gravel. All right. So let's see how we apply these words. What does it mean to hate your father and mother and wife? and children and brothers and sisters. They seem very harsh words. Uh, well, we know that it cannot mean a literal hatred in that sense because Jesus commanded us back in chapter 6 even just to love our enemies. So how much more those who are close to us? The same or well, very similar expression is used in, in Genesis in, uh, in chapter 29 uh, when Jacob is talking about his two wives, Leah and Rachel. The, the implication is that he hated Leah and loved Rachel and yet we know he didn't hate Leah in that sense it's just that he preferred Rachel and so that gives us a, a, an idea of what this is, this is on about it gives us an insight into this passage now I think it can be pretty much summarised like this in one line whenever I have to choose I will choose Christ 
So if something or someone in this life is competing for our love, our time, our money, our commitment, when, when, we, when we have to make a decision, when we're faced with a decision, then we choose Christ. This is something that every Christian should decide up front, that throughout my life I will choose Christ. He will have, my, have first call on everything. On, um, you know, we might be frightened by that sort of a commitment. But remember that Jesus is not a cruel tyrant. Uh, he longs to do good to his people. He has given us his kingdom and all things work together for the good for those who love him. So in this passage then, Jesus goes on with a, with a couple of parables of what it means to count the cost. The first is a, of a man building a tower. Now, in the first century, a tower was a, probably about the biggest thing you could build apart from a king's palace or something. So think impressive building. He decides to build it. It is, it is embarrassing to him if he has to quit halfway because he runs out of money. Uh, even more so, the person who becomes a Christian is on fire for the Lord uh, but then quietly slips away and back into his old life. Not only is he going to be open to ridicule, but the gospel will be shamed. And the second parable is the, the king who has been threatened by a more powerful king. Can he stand up to this more powerful army? So the, kind of the first parable is saying, can I afford the cost of following Jesus. And the second one is saying, well, can I, can I afford not to? Can I resist this? Should I just give in? And I, on the surface, perhaps we could say that these two parables are, seem a bit random, um, not, not particularly well chosen even, and yet we know that that is not the way with God's word, that everything is very carefully chosen for our benefit. And I was talking with John about this the other day and he said and he said that he thinks that the two parables are related in this way that the first one is about counting the cost how much is this going to cost me when I become a Christian and when one sits down and works that out we realize that actually no I can't afford it and so that sort of relates to the second one when if we see this this passage here, who, who can read that and think, yeah, I do that? It's, not, it's, it's too hard. And so the man who has an army com coming against him that's twice as big, he has to just give in, basically, and plead for mercy. And that's kind of where these two parables are taking us because that is our position. We can't, we can't pay this cost. It's just too high, but God can. And when we fall before him and say, Lord, I, I just can't do it, well, this is the part of the Holy Spirit in our lives where he comes into our life and he helps us more and more to live the way that, that God wants us to. And salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall it? Saltiness be restored. 
The disciple of Jesus who is no different to the world is of no use either to the church or the world. I had a look at, uh, at what John Piper had to say about this passage and I'm summarising here a, a long sermon into just three, three lines. It seems to me that I, that I could distill it into three things as a takeaway line of how to apply this. The first one is, whatever does not enhance your enjoyment of Christ, don't do it. About um, well, 15 years ago, before John was going out with Crystal, Shelley and I visited him in Adelaide and, and we decided we had nothing to do, so we decided to go and watch a movie. And uh, there was a movie on that, that we'd seen a, a previous movies made by this, by this director and we thought they'd been really good. So we thought, oh, let's go and see that one. And John pointed out to us that it actually had a, you know, a ra an MA rating for a lot of violence. And violence in movies never, you know, some things affect you in movies, but that, that never really has with me. And I thought, oh, it'll be all right. We know these, this guy who's made this movie, it'll be good. But it wasn't good. It was really bad. And uh, it affected me. It was so violent. And I felt sick and felt sick for several days. Um, you know, <laughs> we have to be careful about our life, what we do. Um, that was never going to en enhance my enjoyment of Christ, going to that movie, or anybody's for that matter. So whatever does not enhance your enjoyment of Christ, don't do it. If we can't even deny ourselves something as simple as, as watching a movie that's not suitable, how are we ever going to stand when real persecution or tempting come? You know, the, uh, the old Westminster uh, Catechism, the first line of it is, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And that if you have a look sometime, if you've got, got, got an hour or so at the Westminster Catechism, this is writ by, written by a group of Puritans in 1647, and it is a wonderful statement of the, of the Christian faith with a series of questions and answers and then it, it gives all the, the biblical justification for it. It's freely available online. So our chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So whatever does not enhance that enjoyment, don't do it. Secondly, show the world that the world is not your treasure. Show the world that the world is not your treasure. You remember, uh, some of you would remember Ben the Russian who used to come to our church over the road a, a few times a year. He didn't live here, he, but he, whenever he was here, he used to drop in on us. Lovely guy and his dad, Alex, uh, they were immigrants from Russia. Um, lovely Christian men. And, but a Alex got burnt out in that fire at uh, Tea Tree Gully a few years ago. And, uh, and he, uh, he was interviewed on TV or, or it was in the paper. I can't remember. I saw him interviewed somewhere. And, and they asked him, you know, he'd lost everything, lost Every, everything he owned, lost it all. And, uh, and they asked him what he thought of that and he said, I'm a Christian, it's only stuff, it doesn't matter. It's a, what, a, what a lovely answer. Show the world that the world is not your, not your treasure. I guess Eric Little is a, the other great example of that, isn't he? The Chariots of Fire guy, the Scottish runner who, uh, who won the, was it the 800 metres, I think, in, in the Paris Olympics? Uh, and could it, the world was at his feet, but instead he went off to China as a, as a missionary, gave up everything, 
e even though he, he could have become a very wealthy and, and famous man. And thirdly, be willing to lose anything and it will not take away my joy, for my joy is in Christ. John Calvin said, let us learn to be so delighted with Christ that the perception of his grace may overcome all distresses of the flesh. You know, these things need training. We need to work at it all the time. But if I'm going to distill those three things down into one, it's go, going back to what I said before. Whenever I have to choose, choose Christ. These are, are strong and hard and difficult words. But as you meditate on them, rem meditate also on the fact that God loves you so much that he would suffer and die for you. He longs to bless his people. They're uncomfortable words, but they are in scripture for a reason. And so let them do their work in your life. The scriptures are powerful and they do things to us. Let these words work in our life. Amen.